Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire. Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. We are here. I am Michael, your host. This is from the holodeck. Rayman Digital's exclusive Star Trek fan podcast. And I'm in the studio with David. Hello. Hello, everybody. So, David, we are here today to discuss the final episode in Star Trek Picard. And what an episode it was. So let's just get it out there now and say... This was a magnificent episode. Yes. And it makes me feel a little ashamed of myself as a Star Trek fan that I just <laughs> shat all over the last episode. <laughs> now, I stand by my comments. Uh, and we should. I do stand by what I said. But that being said, we got all of that out. Yeah. And we, we were able to work through some of my nostalgia issues. On the other side of that was this magnificent story that came to a near perfect, if not perfect ending, David. Absolutely. Because like, I'm happy that my assumption about episode one came to fruition to me for me, because like, I remember telling, telling uh, all of us that at that last episode felt like it was a part one. And you talking about episode nine, episode nine, okay. where it was like, it probably needed this episode to be together. Like these two episodes put together make, make up for the mistakes in the prior episode, because now that we can actually look back and see it, it, all the decisions that were made in the last episode make sense in order to get us to where we were at the end of the entire series. Why is the enterprise so important? Well, it, it pretty much plays into the theme that we close it, close the entire series off of. Yeah, and I understand I, just like I expected, I did have some fans reach out saying why this is star Trek, the next generation, essentially, why did you get mad about seeing enterprise D I didn't get upset as a star Trek fan. I enjoyed seeing enterprise D. I just didn't like how we got to that point. I yes. feel like how we got there felt a little convoluted and contrived but once we got there and we can all just say oh hey fuck it we're here now let's see what we do with it and in the end i would agree with your assessment david it does work in watching episode nine and ten back to back mm -hmm. it does fit i don't think it repairs the writing issues the exposition no. dump of the opening 20 minutes of episode nine it that's just that's flawed writing that's flawed writing but overall because of how everything works together so well and the way they ended the series, it does smooth out many of those inconsistencies or some of the issues I might have had, specifically dealing with the Borg. Because as I mentioned last episode, there are some big questions that they're going to have to answer pertaining to the Borg 
And sure enough, they did give us those answers. And we're going to get to those in a second. Boy, were those gruesome details that we didn't need to know about. Yeah. I, I, Dave, I love the episode. I felt like I, I will. Usually I don't, (laughs) I don't make our episodes top heavy with praise. I try to be a little even keel, you know, even keel, but you know, this is Star Trek Picard. This is the, the reunion of TNG. And I feel like we can be just nerd fans in this episode and fuck the rules (laughs) that we usually govern the show by and just. Let's have some fun because ultimately at the end of the day, this was a celebration for all of us. This was a gift from Kurtzman and Metallus because this is what we've been asking for for the better part of what, five, six years. Oh yeah. Probably even longer because of, well, yeah, I'm talking about just because uh, I'm talking about within the Kurtzman era, within the Kurtzman era. Yeah. yeah. Within the Kurtzman era. Absolutely. I mean, you can even go further back in my opinion, because like, when you compare this bookend for the TNG crew, this is the proper way to close out the chapter of this era of the TNG. Definitively. Definitively. Yeah. Like there is no, there is nothing, there, there's no reason to go back and reopen old wounds for these old characters. This is it. This is it. It doesn't mean we're not going to see them again. Yeah, we, absolutely. We, we're likely we will, especially if, if Terry Par- Madalus has if his way. Paramount gives Madalus. Jesus, David, you keep fucking me up with that name now. What is Madalus? <laughs> Metallus. Metallus. Maybe by the time if Star Trek Legacy gets greenlit, maybe then we will finally get this poor man's name correct. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. No promises, though. At this point in the game, if they do greenlight Star Trek Legacy, which they haven't yet, but if they do most of us can expect that we'll probably see some of the, the TNG, the original TNG characters, but they probably won't be the focus. Yeah. And that's the whole point. If, if from what I understand, what Terry uh, Metallus wants to do, the characters, the, the nostalgic characters aren't going to be the focus. They're going to be able to lead a new charge. You know, they're going to be able to, there's going to be new characters that are going to be introduced. And these legacy characters are going to be used to bolster them for a part of their story. And it makes sense. I mean, that's why this felt like a real setup for a true spinoff. spin-off. This, this is how you set up a spinoff series. Oh yeah. And if you think about it, like, this whole season, when you look at it, this was a great introduction into how that kind of using legacy characters to introduce new characters works. That's why I'm really excited to actually see Jack Crusher. I'm excited to see, you know, um, Jordy's daughters, basically a series on them. Why? Because they use their legacy characters to kind of introduce these characters and say, Hey, these characters are important. Especially Jack, Jack Crusher throughout the entire season. He's arguably been one of the most interesting characters that they introduce and he's brand new. He's interesting because of the surrounding story that has everything to do with Beverly Crusher and Picard. And his parents. Yes. That's why he's interesting. If we do move into Star Trek legacy, it'll be nice to see him come out on his own and create his own story rather than just 
only being connected to Picard. Now, obviously, I mean, you're Picard's son, you're Beverly yes. Crusher's son. That's always going to be there. In fact, there was a moment in the episode where they said names matter. I fucking loved it. And we'll get I into that. We'll point. get into that a little bit later because there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of meaning behind that in more ways than just people probably assumed. But the awesome thing about it is they can take baby steps to, to kind of like give these characters a little boost, you know, Take him away from his parents now, but now you could take another legacy character and attach him. And we will, I'm guessing we're going to talk about the after credit scene. No, we're going to skip it, David. We're going to skip it <laughs> because of course we're going to talk about it. Come on. We have to, uh, they can use that character now because obviously that character is tied to his father's legacy, but he has his own legacy that he can use on Jack Crusher. And basically, especially the way Jack Crusher's characteristics and his uh, mentality is far different from his father. Getting to see the, the other legacy character play off of that differently is going to be very interesting. And that's how you do that. It's not member berries. We're no, not doing member that's berries. That's not anymore. member berries. Nope. All right. So let's backtrack just a bit. Now, did you notice the opening Star Trek universe title sequence was different? Yes. Instead of using the the original Enterprise, they used Enterprise D. Enterprise D. I like that. Typically with Star Trek, the go-to mascot, that's just the name I'm going to call it. The go-to mascot when they're doing something for Star Trek is always the original Enterprise. Enterprise. Very seldom do we see any other starships being used as a logo or a mascot. So for them to use the Enterprise D was fitting not only because they brought back Enterprise D in the episode itself, but also this is the, the episode title was the last generation. This is the end for all intents and purposes. This is the end for the next generation. Officially, this is the movie they never got. Yeah. So why not change that logo in celebration of, of TNG and Enterprise D. So seeing Enterprise D, yes, was exciting, David, but also one thing I want to mention, which we've talked about this throughout this season's discussion, is the visual effects are just so strong. We went from having the first season, and I don't want to harp too long on negativity. The first season visual effects, it was a struggle bus. There were moments that were outstanding, absolutely outstanding that first season, but then there were a lot of moments that you can tell the the streaming budget took effect. <laughs> yeah. Especially the, the ending, the, the now infamous ending of season one yes. with the copy and paste starships. starships. Well, they did the exact opposite in the series finale yes. for season three here by giving us a sequence with enterprise D that not just, it's not something we've never seen before with the Enterprise D, but it's stuff we haven't seen before ever, except maybe during those big battle scenes with the Defiant in Deep Space Nine. Or even in the, in the movies. Yeah, definitely in the movies. We got to see the Enterprise D doing all types of crazy shit inside of a Borg cube. There were moments that felt like they were, you know, doing the final attack run on the Death Star. On the but, Death Star but I yeah. shrugged and said, fuck it, this is great. To see the Enterprise D in all its glory using the technology of the time to make it look so great, that was just, I loved it. And then seeing Beverly Crusher, you know, take 
the security console. She's doing the phasers and launching torpedoes, and they all look at it. It's like, yeah, 20 years. It's been a lot's happened in 20 years. A lot happened in 20 years. Yeah, I was chuckling when that happened. Yeah, it was good. So you have moments like that, which are definitely celebratory aspects. That's what a lot of this... I don't want to say this is what the episode amounted to was nothing but a salute and a goodbye. Cause that's far from it. But in between really detailed nuanced writing and obvious attempts and strategy to bring characters stories to an end, they also gave us those moments of celebration. For example, not just enterprise D, but also the very opening line of this episode where you had president Anton, Anton Chekhov. Chekhov. I thought that I was like really shocked when I heard his voice. We're going, wait a minute. What are, what are you talking about? It's Chekhov. All of a sudden, oh no, it's Anton, not Pavel. It's Anton Chekhov. Now it was played. The voice was Walter Koenig. Koenig. Yeah. Koenig. Is it Koenig or Koenig? I always said Walter Koenig. Whatever. <laughs> we can't get Terry Matalis correct. That's correct. But in our defense, David, Matalis has only been around for a couple of years. I mean, Walter Koenig has been around for 50 plus years. We should probably know his fucking name. We're just awful with names. That's just a thing on this <laughs> network. So interestingly, though, it was a nice way to play tribute or pay tribute to the original checkoff from the original series. Yes. But it was also covering all bases because they were paying tribute to both versions because Anton Yelchin, Yelchin played Pavel Chekhov from the Kelvin timeline. So by giving the president's name, or I should say by naming the president Anton Chekhov, they essentially are saluting both of both our Chekhovs. That was nice. That yeah. was really nice. As and a Star was- Trek fan, that was nice. I was glad that also that how they did it because you heard his voice. You didn't have like this flash of him on the screen or anything, because I think that would have been too overblown. I think hearing his voice was awesome because it set the tone for everything. I guess the, the, the voice worked, but when we see moments of Shelby and moments of Ro Lauren, I feel like we could have seen him on a view screen at least you know, possibly like a squiggly, like bad transmission. That would have been kind of cool. But that's just my own Star Trek nerd wants. I told you, David, that I'm throwing out the playbook for this discussion. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to be a, a, a fan. Oh, yeah. Only a fan. And that's what I would have wanted. <laughs> that's what I would have wanted. <laughs> All right. So let's get into this episode officially. It was written and directed by Terry Metallus. <laughs> the pause there. This is the moment I've been waiting for, Dave. And tell me if you agree or disagree. As we had discussed during our pre-show, we are finally in a good place as Star for Star Trek fans. 100% with the, agree. With the ending of Picard and how they ended it and the, uh, the hopeful setup for Star Trek Legacy and the direction that Discovery has taken... And the announcement of the Section 31 movie, which a lot of us have been wanting. Yes. With Strange New World Season 2 coming out. And for the most part, Strange New World was just a critical success across the, the, the world. It was an international success. And now, bringing it to the ending of Star Trek Picard, we are in a good place as Star Trek fans. For the first time in almost 20 years, we're in a good place. And I... 
I want to say that Terry Metalis is this era's Ronald D. Moore. He is this era's Michael Pillar. He is this era's Ira Stephen Burr. He needs more experience to be Ronald D. Moore. Yes. Yeah. Ronald D. Moore is an exceptional talent. This is the beginning stages of his career. Even though he's been riding for a long time, I feel like this is the moment where eyes are now going to be on him. Oh, absolutely. That's why it's really, you know, not <laughs> ironically saying it is paramount to actually <laughs> It's it, it it's really in their best interest to lock him down and basically say, "Hey, all right, let's let's see what you can do with more Star Trek stuff." You want the Star Trek Legacy? Have at it. We don't care. What's do Star Trek you, Legacy? What's that? Legacy. Legacy. Did I say Lacy? It's a Lacy. Okay. <laughs> LASIK oh. surgery. <laughs> but uh, I honestly feel that is he is he there? Yes, I think he can get there much like the, the past classic showrunners that we all know. When I say he is this era's Ronald D. Ronald Moore, D. Moore or this era's Ira's Ira Stephen Burr. I'm not saying he's at that level yet. He's on his way. He, he's on his way, but he, I will say the comparison I'm making is more about his knowledge of Star Trek, his understanding of what Star Trek is and what it's supposed to be. Yeah. We had some hiccups with, I think we can all agree starting in 2017, it felt like a lot of people in camp Kurtzman really didn't understand what Star Trek was, or if they did, they were trying to do something so different and unique that they essentially lost their way. Well, remember, I mean, we had, we had hopes for a lot of the past showrunners, you know, yes, we've had some bad ones, Michael Shaban, but like, there was a point where one of the showrunners, I believe it was Michelle Paradise. We had super high hopes on her and we're saying she's going to lead us. She's going to be the, she is going to be the flagship showrunner. That's going to carry star Trek. And she is good. She's good. Well, she's not, but Metallus. she hasn't done what Metallus has done. No. And that's, that's the thing that I'm, Kind of curious what's going to happen. Now. I will say she has brought discovery since she's taken over. She has realigned discovery, discovery. with what Star Trek should be. Oh yeah. Her, her run yeah. on discovery is better regarded among Star Trek fans than like the earlier ones that were not run by her. And, but that being said, she, with her, when it comes to actually who had the biggest impact, by far, Terry Metalis has had the biggest impact. Culturally speaking, when you look at Star Trek, Star Trek has always been a pop culture icon. It died out for 20 some years and for the most part has been sidelined as a mainstream pop culture commodity. And it's been kind of put on life support and the hardcore Star Trek fans have kept alive. But with Star Trek Picard especially season three. When you go into social media and you look at what the world is saying, not just local markets, the world, because everyone's watching Star Trek Picard. This is what Star Trek has been since its conception. It has never been just simply a property for the Uber Star Trek nerds like ourselves. Yeah. It's always appealed to the mainstream mainstream. And with the success of season three, it has been brought back to the mainstream consciousness. Yeah. 
And that that's the thing that I think is amazing when we look back now retrospectively at this season. The fact that you could take season three and you can essentially say season three is season one because you don't need to see season one. You don't even need to see season two to some degree. I, I like season two. though. I do like season two also. But if you were to just to jump in and say, we are going to watch a Star Trek se- series and start at season three, legitimately people would be fine with it. Yeah, you're not wrong. In fact, I just had this conversation with my mother who struggles with season one. She still hasn't finished watching it. Yeah. She has gone back now four times because she loves Star Trek. So she tries to watch it. She loves strange new worlds. Watched all that really quick discovery. Not so much, not a big fan of that, but she wants to watch Picard because she loves the TNG era, but she keeps starting over. And I said, you know what? Fuck season one. Just watch season three. I I would recommend that you watch season two, but if you want to just jump right on board with the season three, I feel like you won't really miss much. Yeah. I think the way they wrote this season, it feels so, so much like its own thing that is not really beholden to its prior seasons. Depending on, depending on what he does at this point, what would be amazing what Terry Metalis is able to do. If he's able to carry it on and see uh, into Star Trek legacy and make season two of Picard revel- relevant, or is that the problem? Yeah. Relevant. Relevant. Yeah. yeah. That would be an amazing feat in itself because then at that point you would say, well, if you watch, if you watch Star Trek legacy, you got to watch season two then at that point and that become that makes it relevant. Season two wasn't bad. It It was actually very well written. The problem is it just wasn't as exciting as it probably should have been. No, it was very emotional. What I always tell people is like, there wasn't any action sequences. Yeah. It it wasn't, it was philosophical and psychological, very philosophical and very psychological and very emotional because the actual overall story is between Q and Picard. And it's about, you know, saying goodbye to an old friend or basically getting over through death and it's dealing with trauma with season three that it's more return to form when it comes to TNG, there's more action sequences, there's more nuance, but the amazing thing that what he was able to do in season three, give everything the Star Trek fan, Star Trek fan, like baby wants where they want, they want the starships. They want everything. They want to see all the nostalgia berries. They don't care. Okay. Yeah. We'll give them that. But he was able to still give them substance by telling a very involved story about Picard's legacy and having it come to a closure. Finally, just to be fair, there are moments in season three that would not have worked if we didn't see the groundwork that was laid out in season two when it comes to Picard's recovery, his emotional recovery and him dealing with that trauma from his childhood. If we didn't get that, the moments in season three, specifically the ending and how he saved Jack, that couldn't have happened. That wouldn't have worked because he wouldn't be able to actually get over that trauma. Do you realize if he were not able to get over the trauma of his mother from season two, 
he would never be able to actually deal with the trauma of him being Lacutus. He wouldn't have even been able to broker relationship with his son because he was not able to be vulnerable emotionally. Exactly. Whenever he found out about Jack being his son, it wouldn't have really worked because he wasn't emotionally vulnerable. He didn't allow himself to be. If we didn't have season two and working through those problems, those issues, he never would have probably made a connection with his son, emotionally speaking. So, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Let's switch gears just a bit here and let's talk about the Borg. We had ended last discussion with a few questions. We posed a few additional questions and we had mentioned that it was strange that Girardi's, Girardi's Borg wasn't around. Yes. We didn't get that answer, but also I don't feel like it, the, the direction they took, it just wasn't needed. Yeah. It just, it would have felt weird actually with everything they were doing. Oh, yeah. If they had popped in at the last minute, it would have been odd. Well, especially since the whole point about the Borg that we finally understand how they are at this point, especially this type of Borg, it is not the Borg as the giant collective as we think. There is no collective. There is no collective. The Borg itself was just the queen. And that is why I'm absolutely okay with what they did with the Borg. Now, I was a little nervous, as people could tell during our last discussion, because I didn't want them to undermine things. And I should have probably had faith, but... Specifically be, undermine Voyager's legacy. Exactly. And what they actually did was strengthen Voyager's legacy because even though they didn't mis- mention Voyager by name, the queen herself says that she was left to die without any means to assimilate nor travel. The reason we know from watching Voyager is because Janeway destroyed all the trans warp conduits. There was nowhere for them to go. Yeah. And you got to remember, that was a brutal thing that Janeway did to them because she essentially screwed over the Borg and basically. She left him essentially abandoned without a means to travel anywhere beyond what is capable via warp. And also the fact of matter was essentially they would starve to death. Plain yeah. and simple. Right. And that's why ultimately this worked and there, there wasn't a collective. So when I said, here we are again, which I still stand by that last episode, when I said, here we are again, we're dealing with the Borg. Yes, we were dealing with the Borg, but not the Borg. We were dealing with a single entity for the most part. Yes. That had initiated a fail safe 30 some years prior. And she was cannibalizing the surviving Borg in order for the drones in order for her to survive. Even if she had survived and let's say they won, the Borg wouldn't have been what they were prior. They would probably would have been more horrible. She said, we're no longer assimilating. We're now evolving, which I want to say there was a specific episode where they had said, I think it might've been in Voyager where they actually drew a distinction between evolution and assimilation. assimilation and the whole, idea behind that was that the reason why the Borg are stuck being just the Borg is because they're, they are essentially unable to do anything unless they can assimilate somebody with those skills. Yes. So when you're an unable to, to assimilate, you cannot learn and you're pretty much handicapped. So by removing their ability to travel 
through transwarp conduits essentially prevented them from being able to assimilate new societies, cultures, individuals that could help them live on. And that is why they were a ghost ship, a ghost cube. Yeah, so that was that, freaky when they did that. I love the effects of Picard, Will, and Worf just walking through there. And like all of the board drones had pieces missing off of them because they were being cannibalized by the queen. And it was just so gruesome, dude, because it's, it almost gave me the vibes of first contact when we fully see the horror of the Borg where they will, the way they, they assimilate people, they eat the organic material. <laughs> and, and it's like the fact that the queen ended up as grotesque as she, she became, she was desiccated because why she was only eating dead flesh at that point and dead organic matter. It's like, oh, you know why that was cool? The original concept for the Borg, the Borg were directly inspired by zombies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was the entire concept. They were zombies in space. So the fact that Metallus then created this interesting avenue to take, the Borg Queen's only way to survive was to essentially absorb the organic matter of the drones it kind of strengthens that whole concept of them being space zombies. Everything they did with the Borg actually worked for me. So maybe I should apologize a little bit for me being miffed. I still feel like we could have done something new, but you know what? They kind of did. They kind of did. They, they really did. Especially they didn't actually bring the Borg back. It was just a lone survivor, the queen that was attempting a last ditch effort to survive and to evolve and to evolve. And because they went in that direction, ultimately it worked. Not only did it work, but they also didn't undermine things that came before. Yeah. It didn't undermine Voyager's series finale, nor the Borg's defeat by Janeway and the crew of the Voyager. In fact, in a lot of ways, it strengthened that it showed that they essentially what they did worked. Yeah, they, for all intents and purposes, they did destroy the Borg. They did. And like instead, instead of like the normal ways Borg would assimilate, they had to evolve and change their tactics. That's why now the idea of them using the transporter and infecting the young, uh, young Federation officers with essentially Picard's infected but uh, an STD. Yeah, let's just call it an STD. Let's call it a, a Borg STD. It's, no, it's a it's a Picard STD. It's a Picard STD. <laughs> God <laughs> dang! <laughs> You'd think that this would have been Kirk. Take that, Captain Kirk. Exactly. You, you don't would you think. don't have an STD legacy like Picard does. <laughs> he infected the entire Federation. Kirk Kirk's like going. You know, this is why I use protection. <laughs> but, but like the fact that the they took the threat of the Borg and he decided to change tactics. And instead of them just going around and assimilating them by injecting them or capturing people, the Borg evolved. He Terry Metallus actually was able to evolve the Borg into another viable threat. That actually makes sense. That wasn't boring. Yeah, it works. Also what the whole Borg thing did is it effectively brought Picard closer to his son 
and showed how much he has evolved emotionally. And that's something I always harp on is we shouldn't forget. There's a lot of shows that they'll do a first season, a second season, a third season, and then they allow some of those aspects that they had set up to kind of fall to the wayside and they don't use them again. But stronger showrunners will always go back to things that they had set up in season one, season two, season three, and either rework it in order to strengthen whatever narrative aspect they're trying to create for the current season they're working on. And that's exactly what Metallus did. He took... He took all of that groundwork that he had laid out in season two, which if you had to summarize season two, you can just simply say it is about Picard's emotional. Yeah. You know what? Coming face to face with his emotional trauma and then finally actually working through it and tackling those issues. Because as we know, as we discussed during season two, Picard's always been hindered as a character when it comes to his development, not because of mistakes in writing, I'm talking about at the character itself and the stories they've always crafted for him. He's always been emotionally stunted a bit. Detached. Detached. He didn't want to show his vulnerability. And with what they did with season two, it allowed us to work through that, as we have said. Yeah. Because, and because and- of that, David, they were able to use that aspect a more healthier, a, an emotionally mature Picard was able to come to the forefront in this episode and save his son yes. and connect with him at a very intimate level. And that's something that, as I said, at the top of the show would not have worked if they didn't do that groundwork in season two. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, when I finished watching this last episode, I went back and watched the last moments of season two with him and Q and it all makes sense. Now why Picard taking this moment of maturity and getting over trauma and being there for a person who all of a sudden in his recollection, that Q moment when he comes to the realization that Q's always been there, he's always been Q's favorite. And like when Q makes him ask the question, why and he makes him change it to why me and then Q looks at him and says because even gods are allowed to actually have their favorites John Luke you just so happen to be mine and it takes that moment and then allows Picard to get that kind of like that that emotional tether he needs to bring his son back because his son is what's important to him now that's why he's doing the things he's doing because why is he taking his son away from, from what his son is constantly saying in that dream is I'm at peace. I I'm happy here. This is my happy place. Well, when he says that, you know, this whole idea that he's always been alone, his whole life, he's always life been alone and, his whole life. And the Borg queen tried to use that against him and saying that's built into him. You know, it's inherent because of what they did to him, that he's essentially Borg and that he longs for that collective because it's built into him. Well, Picard, in his own way, has always been lonely because of his emotional immaturity. Immaturity. And the fact that he can now speak and understand to that and actually help his son realize that he doesn't need to be alone, that they have each other. That was some of the best stuff in Star Trek. I'm not going to say it doesn't work when you have moments between Data and Picard. We all know those things work, but a lot of that is also built on the fact that we are emotionally invested, invested in those characters. 
this is something new. This is a character we don't, we don't know Jack really. Yeah. And the fact that they made that really work emotionally between Picard and essentially a new character and give us those expected Star Trek emotional feels in a way that not just, that didn't just work because it pulled at our heartstrings, but also just narratively speaking, it just worked with everything they have done throughout the years with Picard yes. and how he got to this point. It fit like the perfect jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. Like every, yeah. all the, all of the pieces that we were given by Terry Metalis up to this point now came to flourishing and we now have a complete puzzle and getting to that point when, when we finally get that moment between him and Jack and the puzzle, the entire picture comes into focus it makes the moments that he introduced earlier for Picard. Mm -hmm. It makes it that much more in focus. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, ultimately it rounded out Picard's story. It brought the last bits of narrative strands pertaining to his story, brought them all together and it gave Picard definitive closure. Yeah. Something that I feel no one in Star Trek history you may disagree with me, Mike, but I mean, like, I, no one, I and down, right. down, down to even the, the movies, no one has been able to give Picard true, honest to God character closure. With this episode, or you could even say this season as a whole, after this season, I feel like as, as Star Trek fans, we can definitively say that Picard is the most well-rounded fully fleshed out character in all Star Trek. Oh yeah. At this point. Yeah. Even, even with like his Terry Metalis's work with the other characters shows how much, how well he's able to actually give every single character that nice fitting closure. I mean, even with data Data's story. Remember we all, I remember me and you were saying like Nemesis's ending was the perfect closure for data. Terry Metalis proved us wrong because like at the end of this, this was actually the perfect ending for data, him becoming human, him becoming, coming to terms with, this is what it means to be human. You need those pieces of you that you may not like. I love the scene where basically he, he takes enterprise D and you uses his quote unquote gut because his gut instinct is actually the part of him. That's lore. Because Lore's the one that is actually the instinctive. Was one. that, or was it more when he was enjoying shooting things? Was that that lore? could be Lore too? <laughs> but honestly, that came in handy too. I love that when Deanna Troy's all, "Why am I sensing joy?" Joy, and it's like <laughs> because that's probably part the part of him that's Lore, and that's what makes that him good. human. Yeah, that is a much better. I never thought I'd say this, Mike. But that right there is a better closure than Data sacrificing himself. It never. Okay, that I was sad, but I understood in movie terms that worked. Movie terms in, in Nemesis, the way they ended it, theatrically speaking, not thinking we were ever going to get anything else. That was decent as a way to, as we have said, as a way to show that data reached a, a specific moment in his evolution that he understood the, the humanity's capacity for sacrifice. That was powerful. But what Shaban did just felt, it felt unnecessarily depressing. Yes. 
yes, those scenes seeing Brent Spiner and Patrick Stewart work off each other was was amazing and emotionally powerful. But the fact that Data wanted to die, he wanted to experience. Well. It, it doesn't. We sit said well. that during our discussion. It just didn't feel right. It felt unnecessarily depressing. Whereas here, and thankfully, this is one of those moments where Metallus probably agrees with us that that was just fucking stupid. Because he reworks the entire thing, essentially retcons it, and now gives us a much better, more optimistic ending for yes. Data. The fact that he actually is able to reach a new evolution, essentially. And finally, his goal of being human is no longer out of his grasp. He has it. He possesses it. And now it's just about him Basically, by the end, coming to terms with it. Well, I love the way they ended it with him for him talking with that he's, he's, he's going through therapy. <laughs> he's going through there. And the best thing by far, he gets sad because he sees someone with a cat. So he misses his cat. <laughs> Actually makes perfect sense that he's going through therapy because how can someone who's never experienced emotions before? They don't understand it. They don't understand. They don't know what they're going through. I would imagine that you would be overwhelmed by so many emotions. So oh, seeing him yeah. in therapy was perfect. Not only was it funny as hell, but it just made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense. And it didn't, it didn't go overboard with the humor because it felt natural when, when Riker looks at us and says, so how are you doing data? And data says, I'm, I'm doing okay. And it, that's a real, that, that felt authentic. That felt real. Yeah. And like from someone that's coming, going through therapy, I'm like going, it was so refreshing and it's so much better than like a depressing feeling that you get with data's, with data's journey of coming to terms with like human sacrifice and basically doing that. And, Oh, that's how he achieves hum being human. To me, this felt like an ending, like undiscovered country where everyone had their moments, everyone had their place, and it felt like a real salute. And he also felt like there was more to come. Even though that was the final original series movie with Kirk and his crew, it felt like there was more. It ended optimistically. You knew they were going to go into retirement, but also yes. you felt like there was more there for their story. That's how I felt with this ending. Even though we know certain story arcs came to an end, we also felt like their future was bright. Yeah. They left us in a relatively happy spot when they brought their stories to an end even when it comes to seven and nine which i want to talk about her a little more in depth because you know i had a lot of problems with what they did with her in season one i i will stand by what i said shaban didn't i don't think he ever watched star trek voyager i really don't i don't think so either because seven of nine was not seven of nine season two comes around matalus takes over Metallus takes over and he immediately gets, it's obvious. If you know what to look for, he immediately gets to work on fixing seven. Yes. Most of season two, he realigns her characterization with who she was in Voyager, but also not forgetting that 20 some years has passed and she has grown and matured. It feels more logical where she is in season two. Yeah. Then we move into season three and we see the best parts of her. We see little bits of what Shaban did, mostly what Metallus did in season two with what Berman and the gang did in Voyager. Yeah. And then they brought her such a great 
end to her story. We're going to say end, even though there's a question mark there. Yes. But giving her the captain seat, but not only a captain seat, but she's the captain of the fucking Enterprise. Enterprise G. G. And then on top That's of that, a big deal in the world of Star Trek. On top of that, the the that mo- that scene with her, Tuvok, and Shaw when they're when Shaw get, when he plays the re- re- last recording of Captain Shaw. That was awesome because it felt so. It, it was the perfect capstone to Seven of Nine going back to Voyager because all of us as fans have said seven deserves to be that in that captaincy after everything she's been through in Voyager, she needs to be in the starship. Yeah. The only thing that would have made it perfect was if she was in the star, uh, the, the new, the Voyager class that I would have been okay with that. But I feel like this is even more of a, I, I, a gift to the character. I yes. guess you could say for people who really love seven, which if you like Voyager, everyone likes seven. Everyone she was seven. the standout character, her and Janeway, just the things they did between the two of them and me and, and, you, and Robert Picardo as well. The doctor, he did great. Those three characters were the standout characters, characters. in that series. So giving seven, nine, a captain seat, making her the captain of the enterprise, I felt like it was earned because we had yeah. seen her, you know, over the course of 20 years and everything she did in Voyager. And we never really quite, I felt, I don't want to get into complaining territory, but with season one, I just felt like it was unfair Yeah, because the way Voyager ended, you got this idea that it was going to be a happy ending for, for seven, everybody, for everyone. And seven was going to move on with her career in Starfleet. She had her kid. She had that relationship with, and then flash forward to season one of Picard. And it felt a lot like what Ryan Johnson did with Luke Skywalker. Yeah. We don't see him for 30 some years. And when we finally do, he's a fucking homeless schlub. <laughs> he sucks at everything. He sucks he's at a, everything he's a massive failure. And then he dies. That's what I felt Shaban did with seven. with seven. And it just irked me. I'm like, why? Why? If you're going to do this, at least give us some context, a little bit more. Yeah. I feel like Metallus understood that. As a Star Trek fan, he probably felt the same way. And then he actually gives this character a far better standoff. Absolutely. And giving her that moment with Tuvok bringing into those, you know, bringing into this show, the, the Voyager vibes. But I will say Dave, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Okay. Tuvok wasn't everyone's favorite character in Voyager. In fact, I want to say he probably was <laughs> He's people's the most disliked Vulcan. He is probably the most disliked Vulcan, yes. which leads me to think that Kate Mulgrew passed. Because there is no reason why they wouldn't have brought her into this. The only thing I could think of, because that should have, instead of Tuvok at the end, that should have been Janeway. Janeway. It just should have. It would have made way more sense. And much more impact. Especially if like Seven, when you get the initial introduction of Tuvok and you find out that, oh, that's a fake Tuvok, that's a shapeshifter. If that was Janeway instead of Tuvok, you would have had a much impactful emotional moment for Seven. Because then the question becomes, the person that basically took Seven under her wing as a mother-like figure, is she dead? Is she alive? We're not sure. And then 
to lead it up to basically the scene with her taking the captaincy, it would make much more sense if Janeway was the one that tells Seven, here, you've earned this. Okay, so it wasn't just me. No, it's not just you. I think that... Do you think there's behind the scenes reasons? Because I, I hate I, to I, say it, yeah. Because we all know that there's a lot of lip service now, and and it's not cool anymore to admit that you don't like your fellow co-stars. <laughs> we live in this fake era where people are forced through social media to be kind to everyone, even if you don't yes. like someone. Have we forgotten that it's okay not to like someone? It's okay if you don't <laughs> okay. like someone. There's nothing wrong with disliking someone. And as we know, the set of Voyager was toxic as fuck. And Jerry Ryan and Kate Mulgrew were Did at each other's throat all the time. Now they said, what, like 10, about 10 years ago or so at a Star Trek convention, they had admitted that they squashed the beef. Okay, well, they might have squashed the beef for Star Trek conventions and are civil, but that doesn't mean that that history and that baggage isn't, isn't still them. there. It's It's very similar to like how... William Shatner and George Takei say they squashed the beef, but you know that basically they do not like each other still. Well, yeah. (laughs) George Takei tweets about William Shatner like every week. Every week. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm wondering if how much of that played a part in Kate Mulgrew not making an appearance. Before you answer, throw yourself into her shoes. You are, you are the actor that plays the captain of your own series. And instead of bringing you into a show, they bring in one of your co-stars who wasn't supposed to be the lead. This is Kate Mulgrew's entire problem with Jerry Ryan. Yeah. Is that the entire show shifted to revolve around her. Around seven. That It was an ego thing. And I actually, I love Jerry Ryan, but I understand Kate Mulgrew's problems. Oh, yeah. I would be upset if I was hired to be the lead and suddenly the light is no longer on me and it's on Jerry this Ryan. Person. So... Do you think a little bit, a little bit of that had to do with the fact that she didn't want to be on this show? Or do you think maybe they'd even ask her, which would even be worse in my opinion? I think that it was more or less Kate's decision because if you think about it, and I thought about this long and hard because I'm a huge Voyager fan. Voyager, for as long as me and you have covered Star Trek, Voyager has always maintained being like my top two favorite series. You know, Deep Space Nine has kind of got gotten up there and chart made the dramatic charge from bottom of the barrel. But like Voyager is always very personal with me. And like I honestly feel that Kate Melgrew probably decided herself she didn't want to be in Picard. And even if they asked her, because she's she's already in Prodigy. It's not that hard to ask Kate Mulgrew, hey. You're in Prodigy right now, and you're actually voicing your character. She's actually up in front. She's still around here during this time period. We should probably connect it, but I th- honestly feel that it was probably Kate's decision to not be in Picard. Now, she did, I want to say last year, she mentioned in an interview that she did give Kurtzman certain stipulations. If I return, in live action form, then there should be, you know, she, she had some rules and she did give a few of them out. She says, I want, okay. So she said, first, the writing is going to have to be absolutely exquisite and as tight. I mean, so tight. I want that language to just burst. I want the story to be 
uh, taut, strong. And she said, no languishing. I don't want peaks and valleys. I want a Janeway that everybody can say that's what she's become. I'm with her. So just going off that, I don't think she would. Based on what she wants for her character, I don't think she would want that cameo. Yeah, I don't think she would want the cameo. Now, here's the thing I thought about. If Terry Metalis is actually allowed to do Star Trek Legacy, if Paramount basically gives him the blank check that we all hope at this point he gets. She's got to have some part to play. Exactly. Yeah. Because Seven of Nine becomes Captain Seven. It would feel strange. And I'm like going... There in itself, you write the narrative for Seven of Nine's next chapter is if you put her put her in parallel or opposition with Admiral Janeway. David, if they do, in fact, do this Star Trek legacy, what they need to do is have four or five core characters and they need to write this like Game of Thrones, minus the massive mistakes they made towards the end, obviously. Have an ensemble cast. I'm talking oh, yeah. 20 people. 20 people. That's fine. Game of Thrones did it fine for three, four years where you have four or five core characters that are the embodiment for the most part of the narrative. And then they have rando characters that are seen throughout the seven season run that have their own story arcs, but those arcs are spread out through multiple seasons and they always come into play when they're needed for those core characters. Yeah. That's what they need to do with the older TNG characters. They need to have them around two or three episodes a season, give them their own little intimate arcs that may not have definitive closure every season because they're there more or less to assist. But then season two comes around, season three comes around, and you slowly start connecting those dots. That's how they should handle that. And that'd be a perfect way to bring Janeway in. Give yes. her a, a part to play over the course of four or five seasons, but have her only appear maybe three times a season. Yeah, because especially it is the next chapter. And tell me if, tell me if I'm just basically grasping at straws, Mike, because I thought about this and I was like going, how can they bring in Janeway up? into this point if they actually do star trek legacy mm -hmm. the easiest way to do it is you have uh, you have captain seven of nine actually learning being a full-fledged captain at this point and having to basically always be compared to captain janeway because that was the thing that seven in season three they made that big scene between her sean picard where seven makes the comment that she's always been compared to Janeway and Picard because those are the, the ideals she has to live up to. Not compared. She said she wanted to be, she like wanted them. to be like them. So all of a sudden in the next, in Star Trek legacy, her learning to be a, a captain on her own, but she has Janeway hovering over her, like, you know, like some ghost and you have Admiral Janeway still being the Janeway we know because yeah, we could see Janeway looking at this and saying, hey, that's one of my my family, my children, because that's what she saw everyone on Voyager on, on that ship as. It was, she was the matriarch, she was the mother, and she watched out for everybody. She sacrificed, she would kill anybody to protect her family. And now she has to watch Seven, who was one of her prized pupils, become a captain. Oh, yeah, Janeway's going to probably poke her nose in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would make sense. It would make sense.
Yeah. All right. Uh, speaking of seven, then let's just close out and move on. You mentioned the whole Janeway and Captain Picard aspect in connection to seven. And one thing that she had said in that moment you're talking about is that she had always wanted to inspire like Picard, like Janeway. That's what she wanted to do. I believe she was saying that as uh, in her defense to Shaw when, Shaw. when it yep. came out that she went against his orders. And that's exactly what they gave her in this final episode. When the wet behind the ears crew, the only remaining people left over, the guy that was a, <laughs> was cook, a cook, what did she do? She did exactly what she said she hoped to do someday, to be an inspiration, just like Picard, just like Janeway. And that's exactly what she did. She was able to give that speech and she inspired her crew to do the job they needed to do. So that was Again, such a great way to close out her story for this show. Absolutely. I have no complaints when it comes to seven and nine. I feel like they handled her perfectly this season. Okay, Dave. So this brings us to Admiral Crusher really (laughs) quick. Let's just knock through a few of these last bits here. Head of Starfleet medical branch. Yes. I like that. That's a good ending for her. Rafi's story resolved. I didn't see that happening. I did not see that happen, but it resolved really nicely. It made sense. They reminded us of the problems she had with her family early on and Worf leaking all of her stuff, the stuff that she's done in order to show that she's not a loser. (laughs) That's so sad. Her family thinks she's just this loser. Yeah. And Worf, leaking classified information so that it's public so that everyone knows all of the things that she has done. I thought that was a great way to just give her a bit of end, a little bit of closure because she's a character that we haven't really talked about a lot this season because we're focused on the TNG characters. But in the end, they gave her that resolve that she needed as a character as a that character. started in season one. And I know there was a lot of what the fucks with what they did with her in season one. I was like, how does this matter? It was all fucked up. But once again, Metallus sweeping up after Shaban's mess and taking a character that just really didn't work in that first season and made her work and closed her out. And you realize this is the first time we've ever seen Rafi's story end in any of the seasons where we like go, yeah, we're happy to see what happens to Rafi next. She ends up being the first thing basically number one to seven on enterprise. Yeah. Let's see what happens with that one. Yeah. That's confusing what you just said. Number one to seven. Nine. <laughs> number one <laughs> to seven of the, I know so it's Star Trek with the number names. Yeah. Oh, really fast, David. Did you catch the portable transporter nod? Yes. Hey, that was obviously a nod to Discovery, right? Yes, it was. Okay. And I was like going, oh my God, thank you. Are we going to see the beginnings of that personal transporter device? Is that what we're going to eventually see you think in Star Trek Legacy? I think so because they have to explain it. Yeah. They have to explain how that, remember when it happened in Discovery, me and you were going back and forth about it. We're like, okay, we understand a thousand years has passed. So well, I will say they actually made it work better than discovery. That was one of my problems with the portable transport device. And I know it's really nitpicky, but we know how star Trek technology works for the most part. They've always explained it. 
And we know that you need a pattern buffer. You store people's information in there, the dematerialized uh, aspects, elements of their body. And with a portable transport, you're like, where is it going? You don't really know. And in this episode, the way they explained it, how the phasers were set to act as transporters, transporters. and then put them into the pattern buffer. I'm like, that actually is a better explanation than the than way Discovery, Discovery did it. it. <laughs> and, and that was done like in five seconds. It goes to show you, David, when you have a good writer, anything's possible. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the choice of dialogue, the choice of lines of dialogue that Metallus has throughout the entire season, this, this entire series that he's covered this is something that basically I would actually take into a a writing class or television. Oh, look say, at you! This is what this this is examples of how you do it. Welcome, class. Welcome to the first day. Because think about we're going to watch Star Trek Picard season three. Yeah, because think about it, Mike. It, <laughs> what is the one thing that me and you all the times me and you have covered stuff, movies, television, even down to comics. People's use of dialogue makes you want to rip your eyes out. The Mandalorian. Because they have to make these grandiose. What's the proper term? Exposition type of explanations. When you could just do it in one goddamn sentence. <laughs> and exactly. like a, a clear example. One of my favorite examples no, was episode wait, nine. Not a good not example. A, not a good example. But like. One of the good examples that in this episode that I can point to yeah. is the use of Q in the end mm -hmm. with Jack. Simply using a one bit of dialogue where it says, you mortals do not have any concept of, uh, or, or no, you mortals and linear time and linear time and your views of no viewing time, viewing linearly. linearly. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like going bang. That's how you do an expo explanation without exposition. I will be honest. I was a little annoyed at first when he showed up, but when he, because he's dead. I'm like, oh God, he, we just brought him back. Yeah. And then, and then when he explained, it, it makes sense. Everything we know about the Q, it, <laughs> it makes sense. This is what happens. <laughs> yes. Q died, but also time is relative. Time's relative. So he, he, it works. And so it um, made me excited. And this to me makes me excited even more for Star Trek legacy because once again, it, it puts the, the Picard name. And that was what I said at the top of the show. When names mean everything, everything. when Jack said that, that was foreshadowing, not just, it wasn't just for the intent, the purpose of the enterprise, but it was also foreshadowing what was to come at the end with Q that there's a re as we know in season two, there's a reason why Q likes Picard. Yes. And now we're continuing that. Whatever that reason may be, truly be, obviously it's something Metallus wants to explore yes. in Star Trek Legacies. And I think that that's genius. Yeah. Because like when you think about it, exactly, many people would actually take that scene, eyes rolled and everything. But in one piece of dialogue, Terry Metallus shuts everyone up and says, hey, remember, Q's an omniscient being that... Mm -hmm. Time does not answer to. Yeah. So he can actually be here, but the and still be dead and still be dead. Yeah. Because what a fucking cheat. And it's a beautiful cheat. It, it, it's that, a beautiful. Cheat. That is how you make gimmicks work. Exactly. You be more gimmicky than the gimmick you want to do. Yeah. And 
just with one bit of dialogue. Yeah, it was good. I was excited. There's people out there that may not know about Star Trek Legacies. I know not everybody uh, pays attention to all the blogs out there, but if you have any type of skills when it comes to deduction, obviously people have to realize that something is being set up by the way they ended this show. And obviously Starship Picard has come to an end, but there is rumors more than rumors. There's talk of a new series called Star Trek legacy being run by Terry Metalis. That will obviously involve Raffi, Seven, and Jack. At least those are the three definitive characters you can point to and say those will definitely be the faces of Star Trek Legacy. Yeah. Aboard Enterprise G. But Metallus has made it a point over the last week to stress that this series has not been greenlit. Yeah. It's, it's only not even in discussion. He has only pitched the idea. He has let Kurtzman and the powers over at Paramount know that he has this idea and he would like to do it. But other than that, nothing else has been in the works. So in my opinion, it would be a gross error on the part of Paramount to pass on Star Trek legacy, especially when you start sifting through the data, the streaming data and how much of a hit Picard is and will be as it continues to roll out in different markets over the next couple months. There's no way they're not going. They would be silly not to do Star Trek legacy. Oh yeah. I even think now, what do you think of this idea? If they still keep it Star Trek Picard, but it it's basically about the Picard lineage. It is about the next the next step, the next evolution of the story is Jack. What do you think it's going to be called? Star Trek, Star Trek legacy, Star Trek Picard legacy, Star Trek, the next generation, <laughs> Star Trek, the <laughs> next generation, generation Picard, Picard legacy. legacy. But if they just keep it, if they just keep it Picard, they got it. Nah, they got to end it. You think they got to end it? They ended Picard's storyline for the most part. It doesn't mean they can't continue a story with him in it, but all the big strokes pertaining to him, it's over. Like we need to let it go. We need to let it go. Not to say he can't play a, uh, a pivotal role in Star Trek legacy, but they had said three seasons, then stick to you, stick to it. Three seasons done, start a new show, Star Trek legacy with other core characters, and then bring in our TNG cast as we need them. I feel like that's the best way to move forward, David, because what's the key word there forward. I, and you know, we need to move forward. I keep, I keep trying to come up with an excuse to say, well, Jack could be the next Picard. So it's Jack Picard. Well, he can, and that would be different. I'm okay with that. I have no problem with that. I just want to move forward. And Star Trek legacy, in my opinion, is moving forward. That's more moving forward than that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem. I'm like going, I want to really actually defend actually staying the Star Trek Picard name. Yeah. But it's like, no, you're right. They got to actually, they have to change it. They have to change it. <laughs> yes. If they just say it's Star Trek Picard, but now it's Jack Picard. Yeah. That's that, no. That oh, you're thinking good. they might do an X-Files maneuver. Yes. An X-Files well, maneuver. Still X-Files, but we have Doggett and Agent Reyes. <laughs> yes. That. <laughs> that's what I was like thinking. It's like, yeah. could they do an X-Files? I don't think that's ever worked, Dave, in a show. There might've been one show. 
that's why I was like thinking about when you were. I don't you were think there's been a show that they have been able to hand off two completely new characters under the same title. Title. I don't think they've done it successfully. I mean, spinoffs are one thing, but actual continuing is actually continuing a series. Now CSI is, I believe CSI and all those bullshit shows have done that. I mean, but, they've been, but they they've still been on, change it to CSI Miami, yeah, CSI right. Las Vegas. Yeah. Okay, Dave. So before we close out and get into our final thoughts, I do want to talk about some ideological implications. Uh, I know for the most part we had fun, but let's get into some more serious things. And I, we don't, right. we don't need to broker an entire discussion here, but I do want to make a few points that I appreciate as a film theorist and a Star Trek fan in terms of ideology there seem to be a leaning into former ideological notions. The, those very same aspects that help shape much of the socio-political commentary from both a sociological standpoint, as well as cultural touchstones from the eighties and nineties era Trek, the TNG era. And I think most longtime fans are familiar with uh-huh. that strong push toward a type of liberal individuality that motivates a rebellious counterculture attitude, which seven of nine this season absolutely embodied, but also within the subtext by bringing the Borg back into play, which is the perfect narrative motivator for such an idea. We get that familiar pushback against the implications of what it means to become part of the collective or hive mind. Hive mind. And you have to remember, what was the 80s and 90s about? Uh, anti-conformity. And communism against yeah. you know, the whole fall of Russia, the Sol- or I should say the Soviet Union. And what does communism typically do? What is rule number one of communism? You go after the children. That is literally communism 101 if you win the minds of the children you take the nation and what was the borg doing they were taking over the young officers yeah i could probably spend two hours on this because i i delve a lot into the political subtext and the social commentary star trek because i feel like the older iterations of star trek that's where they really shined in my opinion the philosophical aspects and the dissection of what it means to be human living in particular eras and our time periods. Yeah. And I'm talking about in real world time periods. That's once again, I've said this numerous times, just this season, Star Trek has always reflected or refracted the times that we live in. And even though we may not be facing communism, like we did in the eighties and nineties, you know, coming off the cold war, we are back in a bit of a cold war and we are facing a rising threat of a type of communism in Russia. And of course in China. So to bring back those aspects are not only fitting because of the time that we're currently in, but also it harkens back to what motivated much of the subtext within Star Trek, the next generation. So that's another, that's exhibit E, E. let's just say exhibit (laughs) E of Metallus truly understanding what he's writing. Well, the thing that, because in our last show, you brought up a good point about what Terry Metalis's, uh political leanings, I guess, was the I, best I way I never of got into it. that. Oh, we, we talked, talked about it. Air. We you, talked off yeah, air about it. I, I didn't that. feel like it was, but in I this, was too angry last episode. But in this, in this regard, it does kind of fall into that. Yeah. Is it, is what, is what we're seeing more Terry Metalis's viewpoint or is it Terry Metalis? sticking to what 
is I think he's a chameleon. I know what you're asking. Yeah. I don't think this is necessarily his ideology. I think he understands Star Trek and says, Hey, I'm doing TNG. So I should lean into what TNG was built on. And it's a good point because like TNG was around the eighties and nineties. We, we actually did full discussions about this for our Patreon listeners. Yes. And we used the, the, the Cardassians as well as the Maquis as a way to explain the time period with the fall of the Soviet, Soviet Union, Union and how these characters kind of were substitutes for dealing with a failing nation mm-hmm. and the occupation of certain countries. So, yeah, I mean, you could, I don't know, Matalus outside of this, obviously, and he's not one to talk politically on social media. So I don't know what his, his political leanings are or his ideological mindset is necessarily. However, when you dig deep into what he did in this, with this season, there are those aspects there and either they are his leanings or he is just that good of a, of a writer and he can, and he's a writing chameleon. He says, listen, I know what I'm fucking writing. So I'm just going to fucking lean into what star Trek next, the next generation was built on. I will. I want to say just because of how good his writing has been this season, I want to say it's, he understands the subject matter. He understands. I I would probably agree with that. He understands the, the, feelings that we get with the TNG crew. The TNG crew was created during a time of kind of rebellious optimism. You know, if we had time, we could probably spend about an hour and a half on this because there's a lot of stuff there and that's the stuff I live for. I mean, I love film theory and and there's a lot of stuff going on in this season specifically where you can dig in. Maybe we'll do a Patreon thing. Maybe we'll take each episode and rather than talking about the narrative aspects like we did the film theory aspects. Yeah, we just all. dig into because, the film theory stuff. And if you think about it, Mike, this particular season in season 3, if you compare that to season 1 or partly of season 2, those elements never come into play in the prior seasons. You never see that. And the closest one in season two is the stuff with Q and Picard, but that's more about the human human element or the human, the nature more personal personal. Yeah. It's more. Yeah. It's not, it's less political. It's more personal. Yeah. And I know that basically there's people who are listening to us now and says, Oh, they did some political speech in, in uh, yeah. Picard uh, season two and season one. It was all about, you know, like all that oppression stuff. I'm like going that yeah. there's more to it. Yeah. They had a few lines that were eye rolling in the second season. Yes. That's soapboxy. Yeah. That was weird. Cause that felt a little out of place. I don't know if that yeah. was just some like the story, the, the, the stuff that made our eyes roll like the Rio story. Rio story was just, <laughs> I, I forgot, dude, let's not talk. That, yeah. You know what? I liked, I, I like season two, but that part <laughs> did, it was, uh, but that, that is a lot, is something that I know our listeners right now would, would, would shove into our face. Yeah. Okay, but I'm like, let's like, not talk about that David, is bad. Yeah. I That's don't. bad. Why'd you have to remind me of that, David? How dare you? <laughs> All right. Let's get back to the good stuff here. Okay. I'm giving this episode, David, are you ready? A is 100%. It? Okay. It is that good. And they fucking stuck the landing, David, like you always say. Yes. All right, David, go. We don't have any more time, so just give me your your score. <laughs> I think this is a first. 
because I gave it a hundred percent. So this is actually both of us giving a hundred percent. I think that's a first Mike. I think it's justified Dave, because but it's justified. Not only did they give us things that we just love as Star Trek fans, but they did it intelligently. Yeah. They didn't rely on nostalgia because the writing was weak and they knew it. Exactly. The writing was strong and they gave us the expected TNG aspects of nostalgia. Yes. So hundred percent, hundred percent, a great way to bring Picard's story essentially to an end. All right. This does bring us to the end. I do want to remind people we have a Patreon page. If you go to patreon.com slash Rayman digital and pledge, I believe like $5 a month, you will gain access to our Star Trek from the holodeck tier and you'll gain access instantly to hundreds and hundreds of hours of additional holodeck discussions. And now that Picard has come to an end and we have about a two month break until strange new worlds, we're going to be focusing a lot on that page with content that we have not been able to get into. Patreon.com slash Rayman digital. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.